welcome. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be hitting up the next church, which is the church of Thyatira. Uh, before we do that, just want to uh, throw a few announcements your way, as well as just spend a moment in prayer together. Uh, first and foremost, we just recorded some membership classes this past week, so those who have shared some interest in exploring membership, uh, we'll be sending those out to you sometime very soon and then scheduling a time where we can discuss that material with one another. Also, we have Third Friday Prayer. Uh, this is new, uh, but we just figured during this season in particularly where we feel kind of disconnected uh, from one another, I think it's deserving uh, to just kind of press into one another and into prayer uh, together. So we're going to add just Friday night. Uh, to take some time to just uh, throw our petitions before the Lord and posture our heart before Him in what has been a really weird and difficult uh, season. Uh, adding the holidays to all that mix has been difficult as well, and so uh, we just want to keep our hearts in a posture of prayer. So uh, the third Friday of the month, we're going to be meeting here at 7 o'clock to spend a bit of time in prayer. And then finally, for Christmas Eve, we're going to be outside once again, just um, singing through some carols. It's kind of a stripped-down atmosphere, of course, and we'll be doing carols as well as some scripture reading together, and we'll be sending out uh, somewhat of the songs and the lyrics as well as the readings for that as the time comes. Uh, the things that we're going to be praying for are the, the shut-ins during this season. Um, COVID only exemplifies kind of the struggle of feeling isolated and whatnot, so we're just going to pray for those who are shut in at this point. Also for those who are um, perhaps during this season have been on unemployment, and of course there's been some tensions with whether or not that employment's going to continue, and so we just want to pray in uh, to those particular matters as well, just in a general way, but also then pray for Redeemer, Redeemer Church of Newark, Delaware. So that is uh, a Sovereign Grace Church not too far from us, led by uh, Pastor Joel Shorey. So join me in prayer. Father, we are uh, thankful um, that you care about our emotional well-being. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that your ministry to us is to produce the fruit of joy. Uh, so thank you, then Jesus, for all that you've done to make that possible. Uh, you've been good to us, to give us reason, uh, not just theoretical reason, but experiential reason to have joy. You've come to be our Redeemer You've come to set us free from the curse. You've come to cure brokenness. You've come to see all things made new again. So we simply thank you. We thank you for the joy that is ours uh, in you. And God, I pray specifically during this season, whether it's for those who feel a bit isolated, being shut in um, during this season, or for those who have been on unemployment, and there's just questions as to what the next so many weeks, even uh, next so many months may look like. Uh, Lord, I thank you that you are the one who is in control of every detail of our lives, that you remain sovereign over it, and yet you 
you work your providential hand in all the details of our life such that when we face difficult moments, you're not unaware, you're not disconnected, but you're with us in the trial, in the, in the struggle. You're concerned about what we are concerned with, and yet your providential hand is at work in more ways than we can see. And so, Lord, I pray that your sovereignty, uh, your providence, your kindness and mercy to us would be a world of comfort. Holy Spirit, I pray specifically during this season of Advent that there would be an overwhelming uh, sense of peace in, in, in who you are and what you've accomplished for us, but also that the things that concern our hearts, that they would drive us to, to yearn and want to see Christ return, to see all things made new again. So God, may our hearts, may our hearts both rest but look forward to your second coming. And God, we also pray for Redeemer Church. Uh, God, thank you for, uh, in a short time, just the, how quickly this church has grown and been established. Uh, only being uh, two to three years in and even recently adding many members uh, to their church. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the witness that they have been in that area. But God, I pray that you would give them something of wisdom again as they navigate uh, this particular season. The challenge is there. Thank you for the provision, however, that they testify to, even of the meeting space that they have been allowed to utilize. So we honor you and we thank you that something of a gathering can continue, something of a witness to the gospel can continue, so God, I pray that you would make them a beaming light uh, within that area for your name's sake. So we ask your blessing, your rich blessing upon them, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 18 through 28, and if you thought uh, that last week we, was a bit uh, concerning or a bit dicey in terms of the tenor of the text. Well, buckle up, because we're jumping into the church of Thyatira. Verse 18, Jesus states this, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, and faith, and service, and patient endurance, that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works." and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works. 
But to the rest of you in Thyatira, do not hold this teaching, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The end justifies the means. This is a phrase that we uh, most often would see as probably a negative statement. It's a statement of, of, of reasoning to be rejected. It's an ethic to be rejected. And why? Well, because we know that it's a statement that has been and can be used to justify incredible evil. The end justifies the means. And yet, it's a statement, if we were honest with ourselves, that can often be a regular part of kind of the inner reasoning of our own minds and hearts. It's the reasoning of, oh, I can, I, I can cut corners here or there. I can buy it and return it for more than for what I purchased it. I can work the numbers on my timesheet or my login. I can neglect to let customers know. I can manipulate situations. I can withhold details from perhaps my taxes. I can work a few underhanded deals so that I get more than I would if I had been perfectly honest. And oh, I could get more and, of course, use the more to help those in needs. I can gain something of financial comfort and security for myself, but I can also help out those other folks. I can provide that particular Christmas present for that person in need. The end justifies the means. But what we often fail to see is that all those kinds of statements and actions reveal something profound about our own hearts and minds. It reveals something about our faith or something of a lack thereof. Those statements, those actions reveal who or what my heart truly trusts in. Those moments are actually profound faith moments. They reveal the reality of our hearts. You see, this was the issue in the church of Thyatira. Oh, they were a giving church. They were a sacrificial church. They saw needs and they met needs. They were a church, even as the text says, that was driven by an ever-increasing love and sacrifice for others. And yet... The way some earned their living did not justify their giving. The way some were earning their living did not justify their giving. 
it's altogether clear from this apocalyptic literature. And remember, apocalyptic literature is just this. It's, it's heaven being, heaven's perspective being opened upon our earthly experience. And it's clear from this apocalyptic literature, from this heavenly perspective, that the end did not justify the means. And we initially catch a glimpse of this by how the characteristics of Christ frame out the words to the church. Verse 18, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. It's a description that unmistakably highlights judgment. Jesus is not referred to the Son of Man, but to the Son of God. Those titles were often interchangeable throughout Scripture, and yet they're intentionally interchanged here. In chapter 1, verse 13, within the vision that John sees, Jesus is referred to the Son of Man, which is to highlight something of his humanity, perhaps even his compassion, his likeness to us. And yet here, He's referred to as the Son of God, which highlights who he is as the sovereign one, as the judge of all. Also, then, his eyes are like flames of fire. That is, he knows not only everything we do, but even as the text uh, uh, lightens, enlightens for us, that he searches out the thoughts and intentions of our hearts, our minds. And not only that, but he has feet like burnished bronze. That is, his feet are battle ready. He is ready to stamp out his enemy. As later we will see in Revelation, we'll read that he treads out the winepress of the wrath of God. The terms being used here of Jesus unmistakably are highlighting judgment. For the end has not justified the means. And let's not forget this before we get deeper into the text. As scripture states in 1 Peter 4, judgment begins at the household of faith. While ultimate judgment will come, Judgment is already at work within the church. This is why each address to the churches, Jesus, as we've seen, commends the church for the things that they're doing right, but he confronts them for the things they're doing wrong, and he places a condition before them to repent. It's a call upon the church that she would confide all that she is in all that Jesus is for her, and so Jesus is judging the church. He's bringing her to a decision. That's the weight. When you read through this, that's what the weight of the text is supposed to do. It's, we're supposed to feel this text. And it's supposed to bring us to a place of consideration and decision. Where are our own hearts at? Judgment will and has begun at the household of faith. So let's consider, just as we have with the other churches, first and foremost, Christ's commendation to the church in Thyatira. 
It's important first to consider the city of Thyatira. It was, as one scholar points out, he says that this city was the least known, least important, and least remarkable of the seven cities. Right? It wasn't anything like the Roman capital of Ephesus. It wasn't anything like the Ivy League town of Pergamum. No, Thyatira was actually an old garrison. Right? It, was, it was just an old uh, army base that was between Asia and Europe. And it was more or less just kind of the first line of defense from any enemy attack. In other words, they were kind of like the speed bump, actually, before getting to any of the other more important cities. And yet over the years, what the town had become is more of a blue-collar town. It was an industrial town with trades including wool and leather, but they were most popular for metalworking and dyed linens. In fact... They were said to have the secret to a quality of bronze that surpassed all others. So the imagery of Christ's feet, like burnished bronze, would have resonated with them. The, they would have known something of the kind of damage a rightly fashioned piece of bronze could inflict. But also, they were popular for dyed linens. And of course, Lydia, if you remember the seller of purple from Acts chapter 16, she was from Thyatira. And some think that she and her family, once they came to faith, would have been responsible for starting this church in Thyatira. But it's all to say this, that Thyatira, as a city, was simply the, the cogs in the wheel of commerce. You know, it was just this gritty city, this hard-working people. Nothing of true worldly prominence was there. Nothing of true value and glory, worldly speaking. There was nothing important in Thyatira. And yet, the one who is the ruler of the kings of the earth, and yet the one who is the Alpha and Omega, the one who's adorned in royal uh, authority, he gives particular attention to this church. He does not view his church as the world may view it. He sees this church in Thyatira as precious to himself, as blood-bought and therefore worthy of his attention. So verse 19, he says, I know your works. Once again, he's, he's intimately given to them. He loves and adores his church. And here he commends the church in Thyatira for love and faith, which would have been the motivating factors for what he refers to as an ever-increasing service and patient endurance. For their latter works exceeded their first. It's the exact opposite of the church in Ephesus who lost their first love. They began well, but they, their hearts became cold and their care for others was something that kind of fell off rather than increasing. So here Thyatira is known for being an ever-increasing channel of blessing to others. They've not plateaued. They've not grown weary in well-doing. No, they... They know the love of Christ, and therein they have 
ever increased in rendering that same kind of self-giving love and service to others. This just is the reason for Christ's glad commendation of this church. Now, as I've considered our own church in light of this point, I don't even dare ask the question, <laughs> are we this kind of church? I think you've all demonstrated something of this kind of love to one another and to those even outside our community of faith. I could go through just a list uh, of, of what has been taking place within our church. You've supplied food and care to one another. Even the last couple weeks, there's been a few occasions where there's been need even of folks outside our church, and yet you've graciously supplied their needs. You've came, come alongside them, intentionally desiring to show something of the love of Christ to them. As a church, you continue to financially care for one another. You help one another with home projects and being present with one another in times of loss and need. The specifics are there that I won't go into, but you've been generous. You have ever increased in your love and service to others. And so I just hope, I hope we feel, we feel something of the pleasure of the Almighty saying, I know your works. I know my love at work in you and through you. I'm involved in those actions. I'm involved in that sacrifice. I'm involved in that love, in your ever-increasing service to others. I hope you feel something of the pleasure of the Almighty saying, well done, mercy gate, well done. But now we come to verse 20, which is the confrontation. While the church in Thyatira are incredibly loving and sacrificial as a church, it doesn't justify some of the deeper issues at play here. Remember, the end does not justify the means. Verse 20, Jesus says, I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants. The problem here, let's just get it straight, is not that a woman is prophesying. As foretold in Joel 2, as fulfilled in Acts 2, as illustrated by Philip's daughters in Acts 21, and as it's apostolically commanded in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, women are to prophesy. Nor is the problem here that she's teaching in this church, as some would want to make the issue. The issue is not gender or prophecy or the fact that she's teaching, but rather that she is going unchecked. She is a self-proclaimed prophetess teaching seduction, and no one is doing anything about it. It's willful, willful tolerance that's taking place within the church perhaps even actively permitting, if not openly encouraging, what she is teaching. And what is she teaching but sexual immorality and eating food offered to idols? Now, we'll get into the specifics of that and consider it. But you see, most likely this was a real woman who carried incredible gifting and influence. She was a real woman, but of course, 
she carries something of a symbolic name, her name being Jezebel. It takes us back to the Old Testament. Jezebel was the wife of King Ahab, and she was notorious in Scripture for wielding something of incredible influence over God's people in leading them into idolatry and sexual immorality. But it's also worth noting this. She's eventually brought to her demise by being thrown from a window and being trampled underfoot by horses. 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 33. You are to see something of the symbolism of the name. And you are to feel something of Christ's feet as burnished bronze, ready to stamp her out. You are to feel something of this impending doom that is hanging over this particular church. We are to feel the weight of this text. We are to sense something of the fear of judgment being brought upon this church. But again, to the point, why are they willfully allowing this? Why isn't the church standing up and doing anything about this teaching? Well, it's more complex than what we might see at a first reading of the text. Remember, this was a trade town. Uh, even archaeologists have uncovered the remnants of the town and proven to uh, see that it was a town of many trade guilds. This meant that each trade company or guild had an accompanying deity. So if you worked there, you were expected to join the company feasts, which of course involved pagan worship and food offered to idols. And after you had worshiped through food and drink, priests or priestesses, would be invited into the gathering to give and receive sexual favors. So if you didn't offer worship to the god of the trade guild, you didn't have a job. So do you see the tension that the people in the church of Thyatira were facing? It wasn't just about this kind of outright flagrant disobedience. This disobedience was motivated by economic comfort and security. It was for them to say, I, I, can't, I can't lose my job. I have to put food on the table for my family. I have to make that house payment or we have nowhere to go. They would have been feeling all these tensions and Jezebel would have been taking the opportunity in their moment of crisis to step in and say, oh, this is just completely permissible for you. God wants you to have financial security and comfort. Just worship Jesus through these feasts and through this sexual immorality. Just focus on him. And you'll have the financial security and comfort. You'll even have enough left over to give to others. Just let the end Justify the means. But again, do you see the tension? Do you see the burden of the moment, the heat, if you will, of the situation? It's revealing something. It's revealing that God's people are failing to walk 
by faith. And therefore, willfully letting the end justify the means. And all of this is worthy, it's deserving of this divine confrontation from Jesus. It should cause us to all consider our situations. COVID tends to be a situation that puts a little heat upon us. We feel the burden of it. We feel the tensions of it when it comes to our financial well-being. Once again, what are these situations revealing about our hearts? Is it revealing dependence upon Christ or dependence upon ourselves to cut corners, work in angles, all for the sake of maintaining something of financial security and comfort? What is the heat of our situations proving about our hearts and our faith? Here in the church of Thyatira, they are willfully tolerating and even actively involving themselves in sin in order to ensure something of financial security. Their reasoning is the end justifies the means. But third, it's this logic, this, what the text is saying, evil logic, it is seductive reasoning that leads to this condition, or at least a condition for a few. Otherwise, these verses are marked with just devastating judgment. Jesus is bringing a condition for some, but really, ultimately, bringing the hammer down on everyone else. Verse 22, Jesus has given Jezebel time to repent, but she hasn't. So, verse 23, there is a declaration of judgment. I will throw her onto her sickbed. The idea is that her bed of immorality will become a bed of death. And those who commit adultery with her, or that is, join in her teaching, or openly tolerate it, I will throw into great tribulation, unless, there's the condition, they repent. And her children, I will strike dead. That is, her children being her spiritual offspring, those who have come to faith, in some sense, through her teaching. Jesus is saying that he will bring sickness, circumstantial affliction, and even death upon these people unless they repent. He also notes in verse 24 that he will keep something of the faithful remnant from all of this destruction. But nonetheless, all of this judgment, this call to repentance, is for an express purpose. Look at verse 23, and this is the main thrust of the whole whole point given to the church in Thyatira. So that all the churches will know that I am. I am he who searches the mind and the heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. This 
verse is actually borrowed from Jeremiah 17. And guess what the context is? It's idolatry that is being involved in for the sake of financial security. It's the same context. It's the same subject matter. Now notice what Jesus calls himself or refers to himself as. He refers to himself as the I am. I am he who searches the mind and the heart. Do you remember who the I am is? Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. He is the self-sufficient, self-existent one, right? He doesn't depend upon anything. He himself is the life source for all things. He's created all things so that they would depend upon him, including you and me, and depending upon him for our very financial security. He is our life source. He provides us with life, with breath, with all things. And therefore, for the church in Thyatira, the point is this. How dare they trust in pagan worship and these, these corrupt compromises to ensure something of economic security when Yahweh is the one who gives life and breath in all things? That kind of action is not faith. It's compromise. But more to our context, how dare we? How dare we cut corners, manipulate situations, lie about our taxes, make underhanded deals, turn our head from unethical things taking place within the workplace, thinking, oh, you know, the, you know, the government takes enough from us. They won't miss a little bit. Or those big corporations, they won't even feel what we're doing. And oh, what we gain from it, we can actually use for good things. We can meet the needs of others. You see, this text, when it comes down to it, is not fundamentally about the grievous wrongs of pagan worship and sexual immorality. It's about what is happening on the level of our minds and hearts. Yahweh is searching the mind and the heart. He's dialed in to what is happening within. These moments then of external tension are to be moments of faith. God is jealous to prove himself as Yahweh. He's jealous to prove his glory and his power to us. He wants that faith. He wants something of that uncompromised surrender from the inside out. From the depths of our hearts and mind to the very actions of our life. And folks, there's nothing that gives peace to the soul like a clear conscience before the Lord. Where there's nothing hidden, where there's no compromise where there's no subtle lies, but where there is true transparency of soul before God. I'm sure you guys know the text by now. Proverbs chapter 3, trust in Yahweh with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil, and it will be healing to your flesh 
and refreshment to your bones. There's nothing that gives peace to the soul like a clear conscience. Now again, we realize, of course, that when we trust the Lord with our livelihood, it doesn't mean situations will be better. It doesn't mean that our bank account will suddenly find some place of security. But it does mean that our soul can be at rest. It does mean that we can find a place of contentment before Yahweh, leaving it up to him to prove his glory in our situations as he might desire. You see, when it comes down to it, the Letting the end justify the means only hinders and interrupts true intimacy with Jesus. This is what is deserving of such judgment. This is why Jesus calls his people to repent, to turn to him for forgiveness and restoration, to know again true peace and refreshment that only he can provide. So the question must be, pointed at us, will we let Yahweh truly be Yahweh? Yahweh of our hearts and minds, but Yahweh of our financial security and comfort. Folks, he will search our hearts and minds. He knows our hearts and minds. And his desire is that our hearts and minds would be filled with faith in him and nothing would stand it. What are the thoughts that go through your mind when tensions come, when the heat is felt, when the burden of life is felt? What is your heart desiring? To control situations, to find ways in which to get around so that you might have something of security and comfort in this life? Or do you run to Yahweh? Do you remember texts like Proverbs 3? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do you preach to yourself? Do you speak to your own soul? Do you speak to your own heart? Desire Yahweh. Rest in Yahweh. Find your hope in Yahweh. Wait on Yahweh. Do you truly believe him be the one who provides life, breath, and all things. Now perhaps you may be tuned in and, man, you've never really truly trusted in Jesus in the first place. And maybe you are altogether just tired of trusting in your own understanding, relying on your own wisdom. Life is a burden, perhaps that it altogether just exhausts you. Jesus wants to bring refreshment to your soul. He wants to be Yahweh for you. He died and has been raised for you. And he would say even to you, repent. Turn to him for forgiveness and trust in him. And he will not fail you. Now, by way of conclusion... There is a 
promise at the end, a promise to those who repent, the promise to those who actively trust in Yahweh in verse 26. The promise is this, that they will rule and reign with Christ. Now, God's people will co-reign with Christ. There's so much here to see in the biblical storyline but it's fundamentally to say from at least the text that we have this morning, it's, it's to recognize that where we might have to suffer or go without for following Christ, recompense will be paid. And Jesus will actually invite us into that process to ensure that every wrong is rightly brought to justice. The end never justifies the means, no matter how unjust the situation might feel to us. And Jesus promises to invite us in to sort out all that has been unjustly done. The point is, we will rule and reign with Christ. But also, where we might have to suffer or go without for following Jesus, oh, the promised reward is Christ. We get Jesus. Just look at verse 28. We are given the morning star. Well, what is the morning star? Well, later in Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus will say, I am, another I am statement, I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus commits himself to his own. We get Jesus. While in this life, we might have to suffer or go without for following Jesus, the reward in taking faith in Jesus and following him is Yahweh himself. He will be ours forever more. What promises we are given. But these promises, once again, are for those who repent. After perhaps we have bought the lie that the end justifies the means. And these promises are for those who perhaps have been tempted in this life but now say, man, I am not going to lean on my own understanding. I will make this moment of tension a moment of faith. I will offer it up to the great I am. Folks, let's be a church with a clean conscience, with an unhindered intimacy with Christ. Let's be a church that trusts in Yahweh and gives him the right to reveal his glory amidst our present needs when and how he chooses. Let's be a church who trusts in the great I am. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you and ask your forgiveness. 
We are a people who have taken the circumstances into our own hands. We've exercised our own wisdom, and that has all proven to be something of a lack of faith in you. So, Lord, where we are, where we've attempted to cut corners, where we've turned our head from the unethical stuff happening in the workplace, where we've not stood up for what is right, where we have failed to honor you, Lord, we repent. We repent. We recognize that you are jealous for us, that you desire our hearts to be satisfied fully and finally uh, in you. So, Lord, we repent. We repent of the things that we've done. We repent of the things that we've failed to do. Lord, let us not just tolerate compromise. God, make us a people who, who, who abhor the reasoning of the end justifies the means. Also that we can find some sense of security and comfort in this life as we would define it. Lord, help us uh, to find security and comfort in you. May our hearts, may our actions prove our faith in you. That not only would we be kind of lavish in our giving and self-sacrificial in caring for the needs of others, but Lord, even the, the fi our financial security and comfort that we would truly say, Lord, you're Lord over that. You're Yahweh over that. You provide. We wouldn't have to manipulate situations that we wouldn't have to lie about certain things. We wouldn't be given to this reasoning of compromise, but that we would be given to you, trusting you, that you are the one who gives life, breath, and all things. Spirit, we invite you. We invite you to make us overcomers. Make us a people of repentance. Make us a people who do not compromise when the heat of situations are felt. May we trust together in Yahweh. And may you be glorified in it all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.